Let us pray. Gracious Father, we pray for thy holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. And all for the sake of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior. Amen. For some reason, people thought that I was not going to be here today. Um, (laughs) We had a wedding last night, and somebody said, well, it must not have been much of a party. You're here this morning. Well, I'm here, but what kind of shape I'm in remains to be seen this morning. So we will see, but we are going to jump right in. I've been told that I only have a few classes left on this study of Anglicanism before the break for the semester, and so we need to go ahead and get through this because in Advent, we are going to have a special presentation. A few years ago, we had Alan Runyon who came here uh, from Beaufort. Um, Alan, as you know, is an attorney. Uh, he is the counsel for the Diocese of South Carolina in our current litigation. But Alan is also a, a great student of the Bible. Um, his parents were missionaries in Africa. That's where he was raised before he came here and was educated and then got his law degree and has been practicing law these many years. But Alan did a presentation some years ago on the trials of Jesus. Some of you may recall the Roman trial, the Jewish trial, and everything. Somebody said, well, we need to get him back again. That was really very interesting. We are going to bring him back. He's coming back in Advent, and he's going to do a presentation on the star that appeared and the coming of the wise men and so forth. He's done a great deal of research on that. So we thought that that would be a wonderful presentation for Advent as we prepare for the Christmas season. And believe it or not, Advent is just around the corner. So uh, we're going to have to get ready for that. So he's going to be coming. So we've got to fast forward things as quickly as possible with this Anglicanism study. And as we said, this was not intended to be a year-long study anyway. So we're going to fast forward today and begin talking about the global nature of Anglicanism. We left off last week with the age of Wesley. We talked about John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, I didn't say much about Charles. He was an extraordinary man in his own right. Um, John, of course, was the famous preacher. He's the man who's been credited with having founded Methodism. Um, We said that Methodists were really a movement within the Church of England. And John and his brother Charles never left the Church of England. Um, But nevertheless, their followers did eventually break off. But Charles Wesley, um, who was also a priest in the Church of England, John's younger brother, He said, John did not have a happy marriage. Um, It was a difficult marriage. I pointed out to you last week that there was was actually a report of domestic abuse in the Wesley house. And it wasn't John beating up his wife. It was his wife dragging him across the floor by his hair. So um, it was a difficult marriage, to say the least. When she finally left him for the last time, and she left him at several points and then returned to him, he recorded in his diary, I did not leave her, I did not forsake her, I will not remember her. So that was his attitude about his wife. His younger brother, Charles, on the other hand, had a very happy marriage and in many respects was more loyal to the traditions and the rubrics of the Church of England than his older brother, John. In fact, they had a bit of a falling out, not a complete falling out, but a bit of a falling out, at least let's say a very heated disagreement about whether or not John should begin ordaining people, functioning as a bishop. Charles did not believe that that was good for the order of the church. But the amazing thing about Charles Wesley is that unlike his brother John, he was musically inclined. 
John did write a few hymns, as a matter of fact, in addition to devotional works and works on the Bible and all sorts of things. But Charles was really the musically inclined one. He was very gifted, almost a child prodigy when it came to music. Um, but until his conversion, in the same year as his brother, incidentally, he was converted about two weeks before his brother in a very similar situation, this sort of strange warming of the heart. But up to that point, he had struggled to produce great works of music, hymns of the church. And bear in mind that up to this point, hymnody was not really a part of the Church of England's operation. It's not the way they worshipped. Um, the Psalter was set to music and that sort of thing, but hymns were not altogether popular. Um, the Wesley brothers would really popularize what we would call congregational singing. They really would. And that's one of the reasons why Methodists are considered to be wonderful singers. It's because that's a long part of their tradition. But after his conversion, Charles Wesley, who had, had struggled struggle just to create one hymn, would eventually write 6,500 of them. So, and some of them are hymns that you're very familiar with. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, probably one of the most famous of all the Christmas carols. And he would sing others. He would, and can it be, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my dear Redeemer's praise, great hymns of the church. Um, during the American Revolution, um, when the colonists needed wadding for their muskets, uh, they would make their own musket balls, but then you needed wadding to get the musket balls down the muzzle of the guns. They would tear up the, the hymnals, the Wesley hymnals, because that was the only thing that was readily available to them. And they would shout, give them Wesley, give them Watts, give them Wesley. And so that's what they were doing as they were firing at the British Redcoats. So the Wesley brothers were an extraordinary couple. They had a profound impact on England, along, we said, with George Whitfield, who was one of their compatriots. Whitfield and Wesley, I pointed out to you last week, would have a falling out over the whole issue of predestination, election, Arminianism, and all of that. Um, but there is a wonderful story where George Whitfield was asked if he thought he would see Wesley in heaven, because they'd really had a disagreement about this. Do you think you will see John Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield said, no, I don't. He said, he will be much closer to the throne than I. So they were extraordinary men. I will share one other little story about Wesley and Whitfield. Um, Whitfield was a Calvinist. Uh, he believed in predestination. He believed that God was at work in a person's heart, was what we call provenient grace, even before they came to faith. And um, so when he preached, he preached with power and authority. We said thousands of people would come to hear Whitfield. He had an extraordinary voice. Even Benjamin Franklin, who was a deist, was absolutely in awe of George Whitfield. But Whitfield was a great preacher. Um, but he and Wesley, as I said, had a falling out about Arminianism. Uh, Whitfield believed that the will was bound. Wesley believed that there was free will, that you chose Christ. Whitfield felt that, that Christ chose you. You would never have chosen him. So there was this falling out between these two great saints of the church. Well, the story goes that they were preaching in the same village on one occasion, and um, they had to share rooms together. And so before they went to bed, Whitfield got down, and he knelt beside his bed and he prayed this very brief prayer. Lord, I just thank you that you will call those you have elected to salvation. And I thank you that I am the instrument by which you call the elect. Amen. And he got into bed. Wesley looks over at him and Wesley said, Well, that's where your Calvinist prayers get you, into bed. So Wesley gets down on his knees and he begins to pray. And he's, he's 20 minutes into it. 
30 minutes into it. At this point, Whitfield just drops off. He, he goes to sleep. He wakes up two hours later, and Wesley is still there by the bed. Now, he had started off saying, oh, Lord, bring them in. Use me as an instrument. If they do not hear the gospel, they will not be saved. He's just pleading and pleading to the Lord. He's into this. Whitfield wakes up. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. There's Wesley. And he thinks, what devotion. He just, he just sits there quietly waiting to hear what Wesley is saying. What, what, a, what a devoted man. And all of a sudden he hears... He hears snoring, and he goes over, and he pokes Wesley, and Wesley falls over, and Whitfield supposedly said, so that's where your Arminian prayers get you, except my Calvinist prayers got me there first. So, so these two men, as I said, um, profound impact upon America, upon England. Many historians, I said last week, pointed out that um, England was saved from the terrible reign of terror that went through France during the Revolution in large measure because of the leavening influence of the Methodists. So it was a profound impact. But by the 18th century, England was a thoroughly Protestant nation. The church was thoroughly reformed. But England, I said, was becoming less of a nation and more of an empire. And that is particularly true by the time you get to the 19th century. From about the 16th to the 18th century, England is expanding her colonies overseas, There are many colonies here in North America, in India, in the Caribbean, all over. In fact, by 1913, during the reign of Queen Victoria, 412 million people, that is 23% of the world's population, was under the reign of this queen. On one occasion, Queen Victoria supposedly asked Benjamin Disraeli, who was her prime minister, how many people do I really reign over. And he said, ma'am, on your empire the sun never sets. Now that had been said about others before him or before her, but certainly that was the case. So by the 19th century, England is a vast empire. And the important thing to understand is that wherever the British Empire went, the English church went. The English church went. So first permanent English Settlement in America, or in the colonies, was, of course, in Jamestown in 1607. Um, There would be a somewhat failed attempt. Um, It would die out. It would be rejuvenated in 1610. But in 1607, you have the first permanent English settlement in North America. And with the first group of colonists who came here was a chaplain, Reverend Robert Hunt, who had been recruited by... Archbishop Bancroft, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to come and be the chaplain for what was known as the Virginia Company. The Virginia Company was a, really a, a private organization of investors designed to establish colonies here in North America and particularly in Virginia. They named it for James, King James, 1607. And Robert Hunt, the first thing that they did when they landed here in North America was they established a church And they celebrated Holy Communion for the first time in a Protestant service since Sir Francis Drake. So, and this was done according to the Book of Common Prayer. So from the earliest days of English settlement here in North America, Anglicanism had arrived. So Anglicanism was here. It was a part 
of who we were as colonists. In fact, it was the established church in most of the colonies. There were a few exceptions to this. Maryland, Pennsylvania, for example. Pennsylvania was a proprietary colony. It was um, Quaker, for the most part. Um, It did not have an established church. That was also true for Maryland. Uh, Maryland also uh, tolerated Catholics. Most of the colonies did not. But here in South Carolina and Virginia, these were royal colonies, and they were all, there was a state church, the Church of England. You paid your tax, and that tax went to the church. So you had to go to church. That was according to law, probably a good law, um, because you were required. If you did not go to church, you were fine for not going to church. So, yeah, those really were the good old days. But Anglicanism was growing. It was flourishing here in the colonies, particularly in the royal colonies in places. It's one of the reasons why St. Philip's was established so early on. This was the mother church, as most of you know, of all Anglican churches south of Virginia. St. Philip's. Every Anglican or Episcopal church that you see south of Virginia, in one way or another, had its genesis through St. Philip's. So we really were the established church. And it was the Church of England. Our clergy all came from England. The first rector of this congregation came from the UK. Most of them were educated to places like Oxford or Cambridge, but they came here. They were part of the Church of England. They were loyal to the Church of England and to the king who was, as you know, the supreme governor of the church. And then came the American Revolution. Now, there were other denominations that were existing. I pointed out to you uh, last week that one of the ironies of the preaching and the ministry of George Whitfield is that even though he was an Anglican, most of the churches that he established here in North America would become Baptist churches. So the Baptists were growing, the Methodists were growing. Really, religion was growing leaps and bounds here in the colonies. But Anglicanism was the established church. But the American Revolution, 1775 to 1783, would have a profound and devastating impact upon the Church of England. It would almost not survive the American Revolution. All the other denominations actually flourished and grew during the Revolution, but Anglicanism almost died out completely. Now, you can imagine why that was the case. This was the Church of what? England. The clergy came, most of them, from where? Absolutely. They were under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of London. So when St. Philip's was established, there was no Episcopal church, there was no Anglican church per se, there was no Bishop of South Carolina, there was the Bishop of London. And all of our clergy were sent here and they were under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of London. They came through various societies. One of those societies was the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. It was established to send missionaries to the North American colonies. It flourished from about 1701 to about 1775 to the time of the American Revolution. And it did. It provided ministers of the gospel who were trained, who were educated at first-class universities to come over here and preach the gospel. But it also sent teachers. Church of England believed in education. So teachers were sent over here, medical missionaries, doctors who were formally trained in London and other places were sent here to America by the SPG. But the American Revolution would bring all of that to a screeching halt. 
And the main reason was all of the clergy, because they were members of the Church of England, were required by law to take an oath of allegiance to the king, which meant that they were Tories. The vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of Anglican clergy at the time of the American Revolution would flee the colonies. They would either go back to England or a large number of them would flee to Canada. But what that meant was that the churches that were here were vacant. There were no ministers. Now, if there are no ministers, it's not just that sermons aren't be preaching. Some people would actually rejoice if sermons weren't preached on a regular basis. I understand how that goes. But other things were not happening either. None of the sacraments were being celebrated. No Holy Communion. No confirmation. Well, there hadn't been confirmation up to this point anyway, incidentally. And you know why there was no confirmation for all of these years? There were no bishops. The only bishop was over in England. So you had priests here, but you were trained, you were educated as as lay people, but you were never confirmed. But now you're not even getting clergy. So you can't even have baptisms. You can't even have Holy Communion. None of those things are happening as a consequence of the American Revolution. So it was devastating, in spite of the fact that some of the founding fathers were actually Anglicans, like George Washington. But during these years, the Church of England almost dies out. In fact, many of the churches are left vacant, and they are taken over by other denominations. Uh, It's interesting, um, one of the churches that I served in the diocese was St. David's Church in Chiraw, South Carolina. I don't know if any of you know where Chiraw, South Carolina is. It's up above Florence. They call it the prettiest little town in Dixie. It has two churches up there, the new church, which was built, I think, in the 1920s. It's a Gothic revival church. And the old church, which was the last colonial church established in South Carolina prior to the American Revolution. Now, that's the upcountry, that's distant. When the Revolutionary War ended, there was no clergyman. The priest had fled. The church was left vacant, this beautiful clapboard, 18th century church. It's still there. You can go and see it in the old St. David Cemetery. And there was this battle between the Baptists and the Methodists about who was going to take over old St. David's church. And they actually fought over this. And you know how they settled it? They had a foot race between the Baptist minister and the Methodist minister. It's a true story. They had a foot race from one point in town, and the first one that could make it to the church, climb into the pulpit, and slam the gate behind him, got the church. The Methodist won. So, but that was the state of the church of England in the post-revolutionary war period. It was really devastating. Devastated. And that leads us to the founding of the Episcopal Church. There were still some who were loyal to the ways of the Church of England who felt that something needed to be done to salvage Anglicanism in North America. And the question was, what was going to be done? And what would be done would be that there would be the founding of what became known as the Protestant Episcopal Church. Protestant and Episcopal, that was the name, really. It's actually the Foreign and Domestic Missionary Society of the Protestant Episcopal Church, but shortened to Protestant Episcopal Church. Protestant to signify the fact that this was not Catholic. Episcopal, however, to signify the fact that this was a Protestant church 
that had what? Bishops, exactly. The word episcopal comes from the Greek episkopos. It means overseer. And we are blessed today to have in our midst, he probably doesn't want me to point him out, but we actually have a bishop sitting in our midst today. Bishop Alden Hathaway, you want to raise your hand back there? There he is. (laughs) One of the most distinguished churchmen of the 20th century, Uh, Bishop Hathaway is famous because he was one of the founders of Trinity School for Ministry, uh, which is one of the the great seminaries, one of the 11 seminaries of the Episcopal Church at one point, and now a seminary for the Anglican Church as well. He was the bishop of the Diocese of Pittsburgh, and uh, he is the bishop in residence at St. Helena's in Beaufort, but his most famous accomplishment is that he ordained me. (laughs) In fact, he not only ordained me, he he confirmed me when I was a kid, ordained me a deacon, ordained me a priest, preached my institution at St. Helena's, and then he came and worked for me. So the circle is complete. I mean, what does every priest want except to be able to boss around a bishop for a little while? So, but Bishop, we're delighted to have you with us today. But Absolutely. So what we were going to do is establish a church that was going to be Protestant, that is to say thoroughly reformed in the tradition of the Church of England, but governed by bishops. We can't call it the Church of England, obviously. So they're going to choose this other name. It will start in 1789 in Philadelphia. Now there is a sense in which it started about five years earlier than this, Um, Anglicans recognized early on that if you're going to function as a church, you have to have bishops. You have to have bishops. And so Samuel Seabury, who was a clergyman, and incidentally a royalist, a Tory, um, came back to America following the American Revolution, and he was sent by the state of Connecticut over to England to get consecrated as a bishop. When he went to England, the English were reluctant to consecrate him, even though he had been loyal to the English cause. But part of the reason was they did not want to help out the colonies. They still regarded us as colonies. We were by that point, of course, the United States, but they were, they were really stinging under this defeat that they had suffered at the hands of this ragtag band of Americans. How in the world did that happen? We are not going to help them out. And so Seabury could not get ordained by the bishops in England. It takes three bishops to make a bishop. So three bishops have to participate in an ordination or consecration in order to produce another bishop. So Seabury cannot find three bishops in England that are willing to help him out. So he goes to Scotland. And there were non-juring bishops in Scotland. There was a point where the Church of England tried to force bishops on those Presbyterians. And that did not go over well, needless to say. And so there were a number of bishops who had lost their jurisdictions. Uh, They were what are known as non-juring bishops. They did not have a diocese, but they were consecrated bishops. And so those bishops agreed to consecrate Samuel Seabury. And so the non-juring bishops of Scotland consecrated Samuel Seabury, but there were a couple of provisos. They would make him a bishop for the American colonies, but... He had to use the Scottish prayer book. The Scottish prayer book's prayer of consecration. 
which had in it what is known as the epiclesis. That is, when you consecrate the elements, you call down the Holy Spirit to come and consecrate the elements. That was not part of the Church of England's prayer book. That's a whole theological debate we do not have the time to go into today. But that was the proviso that they made. No English prayer book has ever had the epiclesis as part of its communion service. No American prayer book has not. So he was consecrated by the Scottish bishops. He would come back, and he would be the only bishop that was available. Now, he's a bishop. He can confirm. He can ordain. But, of course, in order to have more than one bishop, you have to have three. So, the general convention, the first general convention, organizing convention of the Episcopal Church takes place in 1785 in Philadelphia at Christ Church. Christ Church is still there, but that is the first organizing convention of what will become the Anglican Church here in the North American colonies. At that convention, they will adopt the first American Book of Common Prayer. And they will also see to it that two more bishops are consecrated. After that organizing convention in 1787, Samuel Provost of New York and William White of Pennsylvania will be sent off to England this time. And the English bishops, realizing that it's better to have an Anglican presence than not in North America, decide to consecrate these two men as bishops. And now we have three. So now we can have bishops, we can have priests, we can have the sacraments, we can have confirmation. All of those things are going to take place in North America. And we're going to see that the church here in America, the Protestant Episcopal Church, is going to continue to grow and to flourish. And of course, that's what St. Philip's becomes, St. Michael's becomes. All of these churches will become part of the Protestant Episcopal Church. Now the next big movement is going to take place in 1833. But we're going to pause there for just a minute because it's about 10 o'clock. And let me just see if there are any questions about that because this is very formative. It lays the foundation for everything that's going to come afterward. But this is the beginning of the Protestant Episcopal Church. Yes? Yeah. What you would probably say is that Christ Church would be the mother church for New England and that area, although there were churches that existed in New England that were quite old. But really, Virginia and up would be Bruton Parish. Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg, Virginia, really becomes the mother churches for many of those churches north, and St. Philip's become many of the, for the, what we would call the Deep South. Yeah. So it's really Bruton Parish Church. Yes. <laughs> Is there a biblical basis for it? No. Um, and yes. Um, let me just say a word about the threefold order of ministry, because we talked about the threefold order of ministry in, in past lectures here. And by threefold order of ministry, I mean that our tradition holds that there are really th- three ordained orders, and we said that there's a fourth order as well. But you have lay people, you have bishops, you have priests, and you have deacons. 
Now, Jerry McCord, are you in, in the room? All right. All right. Jerry, would you mind standing up? All right. All right. Brian McGreevy, you want to come over and stand next to him? And Bishop Hathaway, you want to go ahead and stand up? You're a great object lesson. I can't believe you showed up today. So, <laughs> Right there, you have all three of the ordained orders in the Anglican tradition. You have bishops, you have priests, and you have deacons. Ironically, the bishop's the only one not wearing a collar today. But at any rate, <laughs> you can't have it all. But there they all. In our tradition, you have all three orders. But we also said that the laity, in a sense, are ordained as well. Thank you, gentlemen. You can sit down. <laughs> but there is also a sense in which the laity are ordained. We said that this takes place at your confirmation, in a sense. But we have three ordained orders within the church. The tradition has just long been from the earliest days of the church that you need to have three bishops. And I'm not quite sure where that number three comes from, but it's biblical. I mean, you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Bishop, do you, do you know why it is that we require three bishops in order to make a bishop? Okay. <laughs> so, um, but it's been a long-standing tradition. This is not an Anglican innovation. All right? This is not something that we did. This goes back to the earliest days of the church, this notion of laying on of hands, but to have at least three bishops to consecrate another bishop probably to keep the order and unity of the church. So it's not just one person going off and doing his own thing like Wesley did. The idea is that the call comes through the life of the church. And so the church has to agree to this, and that's one way to make it happen. Yes? Well, well that's an issue. Who was the first question? The question is, who was the first bishop? Well, let me say a word about those, two, those three terms. Um, all three of those terms are found in the New Testament. Bishop, priest, and deacon. Now, they're, they're Greek terms. Those are the English equivalents of them. Diakonos is the word from which we get deacon. You can read about the first deacons in the book of Acts. Um, the first deacons were called because in the early days of the church, after the apostles received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, we're told that Peter stood up and he preached with power and conviction, and the church grew exponentially on that day of Pentecost. You may recall that after the Lord's resurrection, there was only a handful of followers. So many people had drifted away in the wake of the crucifixion. Only about 120, according to the book of Acts. But after Pentecost, the church, on that one day, the church grows by 3,000 souls. So the church grows from 120 to 3,120 in a day. That's the church growth movement. It was extraordinary. But what the apostles discovered was that they were being forced to do what we would call pastoral work, pastoral care, and they were neglecting the preaching and the teaching of the Word. And they knew that their primary responsibilities, according to the Great Commission, was to preach the Gospel. And so they formed a whole new order called deacons, seven of them originally, to take care of all those other things to free up the apostles to preach and to teach. So that's how the deacons were formed. The diaconate is primarily a servant ministry. A servant ministry. Their job was literally to wait on tables so that nobody was overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So that's the first order. We have deacons. The second word is presbytera. And that's the word from which we get Presbyterian. All right? The English translation of that is priest. All right? But Anglicans have never understood the priest in the same way that the Roman Catholic Church understands the priesthood. In the Roman Catholic priesthood, the priest's primary responsibility is to do what? What does a priest do? Sacrifices. Exactly. And that is the primary responsibility of a Roman Catholic priest. Just as an aside, the Anglican ordination of a priest and the Roman Catholic ordination of a priest is very similar. The two liturgies are very similar, with one major difference. You know what it is? When the priest is ordained by the bishop, he is handed symbols of his office. And in the Roman Catholic Church, you are handed... A patent and a chalice. You know what a patent is? A plate on which you place the consecrated wafers. And a chalice for the wine. So when you're ordained, the bishop then hands you symbols of your office because in the Roman Catholic Church, the primary responsibility of the priest is to celebrate the sacrifice of the Mass. And of course, Roman Catholics believe that every time the elements are raised, bells are rung, The Holy Spirit comes down and those elements literally, though not physically, but literally become the flesh and blood of Christ. And so every time the priest celebrates, Christ is sacrificed over again. Now in the Anglican tradition, we reject that notion. We believe that Christ's sacrifice was, and I quote, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world once offered. All right? So what Christ did 2,000 years ago was full and complete. So we offer a sacrifice of what? Praise and thanksgiving. Here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. That's the only sacrifice we offer, which is why in the Anglican ordination service, The priest is handed one symbol of his office. It is not a patent nor a chalice. It is a Bible. The primary responsibility of an Anglican priest is to preach and to teach the Word of God, out of which flows the ministry of the sacraments. Apostolic. So what you need to understand is that's one of the reasons why we place such a priority here on preaching and teaching, because that's our job. That's our job. So that's the job of the priest, the presbyter. There is another word in the New Testament. It is the word episkopos. It's the word from which we get episcopal. It's come down to us as episkopos, bishop, bishop. That's how we got bishops. That's the English translation of the word. The job of the bishop is to carry on the tradition of the apostles. To guard two things in particular. The faith of the church and the unity of the church. The faith and the unity of the church. That's the job of the bishop. Now, you ask the question, who were the first bishops? The answer to that would be, we would believe the apostles were the first of the bishops, in a sense. Peter um, would lay hands on others. Paul, for example, speaks of laying hands on Timothy. He says, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So that's where this idea of the laying on of hands comes down to. 
There is this whole idea of apostolic succession, that you can trace the lineage of the bishops back to the earliest days of the apostles. That's the idea. I think that a more biblical notion of apostolic succession is not pedigree, but rather fidelity, fidelity to the teachings of the scriptures. So that's where that comes from. Roman Catholics would say the first pope was Peter, but we would say that the apostles functioned as the first bishops in a sense. Yes, Laura. Well, it would take a long time for the Episcopal Church to get organized um, in, in much the same way that it would take the colonies a great deal of time to get organized. And it's interesting to notice how the Episcopal Church was formed in those days. It took some time. Um, you know, if you know anything about American history, in 1787, at the time of the Constitutional Convention in this nation, you know that a great many compromises were made in order to hold the 13 colonies together. I don't have time to go into all of that, and we're not here for a lecture on American history. But the Constitutional Convention in 1787 was all about compromise. Because everybody went to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 expecting to ratify the Articles of Confederation and make them the new constitution for the nation. That did not happen. The delegates went to Philadelphia, they scrapped the Articles of Confederation, which had governed the colonies throughout the Revolution, and they adopted an entirely new constitution, primarily written by James Madison, with a lot of input from a lot of other people. Now, the reason I mention that, all of the compromise and so forth that went into that, is because many of the same people that were instrumental in the founding of the United States and the writing of the Constitution were also instrumental in the founding of the Episcopal Church. And so, for example, we have a bicameral system of government, don't we? So does the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church, and of course, we're not part of the Episcopal Church now, I know, but we were once, when this was all started, the Episcopal Church had a bicameral system of government. It had two houses. It had a house of bishops, and it had a house of deputies. The house of deputies was made up of priests and laity. In order for anything to pass, it had to pass both houses. All legislation originated in the house of deputies. It would go to the house of bishops. They could amend it, send it back down to the house of deputies, but it had to be passed by both houses in order to become canon law. What does that sound like? It sounds like our system of government. So a lot of this was happening, I think, during that time period. But that doesn't mean that anybody was idle. As we all know, Robert Smith was instrumental in the founding of the College of Charleston and other things and so forth. But the founding of the Episcopal Church was a time-consuming process. But it would function fairly well. But there would be bumps in the road. And the first big bump in the road for the Episcopal Church would be what after the Revolution? No, it wouldn't be slavery, ironically. Anybody want to take a guess? It's a trick question. It's what became known as the Oxford Movement, which started in 1833. And this was a movement within the Church of England, as you might expect, 
in Oxford, which was really designed to take the Church of England and Anglicanism back to more Catholic ways of doing things. And we'll talk next week about how that came about. But it would have a profound impact here in North America to such a degree that about 20 years after the beginning of the Oxford movement, a new denomination would be formed. It would break off from the Episcopal Church. Anybody know what that is? It's the Reformed Episcopal Church. And it would be a direct result of the Oxford movement. But that is a topic for another week. So, Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful and godly heritage. We thank you, Lord, for Anglicanism. It is by no means a perfect denomination, but then again, there is no such thing as a perfect church because there are imperfect people. But the church does have a perfect Lord, and the church seeks to praise Him and to perfect its praise. And that's what we intend to do, Lord, as we come into church. We pray even now that you would settle upon us your Holy Spirit, transform our minds, transform our hearts, that we may worship you in the beauty of holiness, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.